Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the launching of the third of our SLIS uh, colloquia, brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical engineer, we are producing this series of presentations as part of our school's mission to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Since fall 2006, we have produced a wide range of speakers featuring the school's faculty and guests. We have hosted over 35 presentations and attracted an estimated 4,500 physical and virtual viewers to the school's dynamic website archive. Before I introduce today's speaker, a few announcements. Please uh, look for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website at least every other week throughout the term, where you will also find a webcast archive of all our previous presentations on the SLIS homepage at slisweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts, so you can freely share them with your fellow students, colleagues, and associates. Details on how to access these presentations, either through RSS feeds or through the iTunes store, can be found on the Colloquia page. For our students, I'd like to invite you to visit SLIS 21, the school-wide blog maintained by our Associate Director, Dr. Linda Main, on the school's homepage. SLIS 21 concentrates on school administration and curricular development, and even invites your ideas for new classes. Fourth, and finally, for everyone in the SLIS community, I'd like to invite you to participate in SLIS Life, the school's social networking space. SLIS Life offers searchable profiles, messaging, and blogs in which you can share ideas and experiences. One of the blogs I was reading this morning, for instance, was entitled, How I Found My First Job. Find the link to SLIS Life on the SLIS homepage. To kick off our third year, it is my pleasure to introduce professor and SLIS director, Dr. Ken Haycock. Dr. Haycock joined our faculty as professor and director here at San Jose State University in 2005. He's worked in most library environments, school, public, special. Uh, he's been on review teams for university and college uh, libraries and museums. He's also been president of national and international professional associations and is past president of the Association for Library and Information Science, ELISE. Indeed, ELISE recently recognized him with its, na with its National Service Award and just this summer, he and Dr. Brooke Sheldon, a member of our part-time faculty, published the portable MLIS, Insights from the Experts. And as an extra special pleasure today, I'm announcing for the first time in public that Ken was just named as president-elect of the California Library Association. For today's presentation, Dr. Haycock, thank you for him. For today's presentation, Dr. Haycock will help us distinguish the nutritious insights offered by the business and management literature from the mere flavor of the month. Today's title is Library Leadership, Learning from the Business Bestsellers. Please join with me and the faculty in welcoming Dr. Han Haycock. Uh, what I've done is looked at the bestsellers in uh, business for 2007, 2008, 
and what the implications are for how we re lead uh, libraries, particularly the not-for-profit sector, whether there's anything that we can learn from these um, uh, bestsellers. And it's interesting that most of these bestsellers are actually based on research. They're not based on someone's opinion, although obviously some are, just in our own, as in our own field. But there seems to be a higher number who are based, that are based on research that's um, being conducted. So I'd like to look at, um, first of all, some of the bestsellers, what we can learn from them. Uh, you may not agree with the things that uh, I feel we can learn from them, and that's just fine. But there are, I think, some um, key principles that are applicable and that at least warrant some uh, discussion. I'd also then like to propose some themes at the end that seem to emerge from a number of the titles that uh, warrant how we uh, manage our own institutions. So let me um, start by, first of all, recognizing that unlike the National New York Times bestsellers list in fiction, bestsellers in business tend to emerge much later. They tend not to have been published in the last three months. Um, typically, they're around for a few years before they catch on and people say, gosh, there's something worthwhile here. Um, I was first introduced to Now Discover Your Strengths when it was first published in 2001, and it's only now in the last year made it to the bestsellers list and is uh, a very popular. And if you don't know it, I highly recommend it to you because research by the Gallup organization um, indicates that we as individuals tend to be unable to articulate our strengths. What we're able to do is articulate our academic um, qualifications. We're able to list the positions we've had. We're usually able to uh, document uh, accomplishments we've had in those positions. But we aren't generally able to identify and speak to our strengths and the strengths that we bring to positions that we hold. And what organizations tend to do as a consequence is hire people for their perceived strengths and then immediately suggest that they get training to overcome their weaknesses. And that in the workplace, we tend to focus on people's weaknesses and help them overcome them when the evidence is that if we want top performance, we will actually help people to concentrate on their strengths and become even better at those. And that's how an organization grows um, and extends. And this has gone on into um, several iterations. There are a number of related titles about using strengths in different environments with children in schools, uh, with people in different occupational groups. But for me, it was uh, especially important uh, because I've done a lot of work in um, leadership and management and looking at personality type and temperament and how it plays out in environments and why some are attracted to leadership positions and, and others aren't. And I found that um, in a position I had uh, recently, I couldn't understand why towards the end of my career there, I was quite unhappy and uh, decided to leave, as a matter of fact. And a colleague of mine introduced me to Now Discover Your Strengths, and I realized that um, the reason I was unhappy is the reason people often leave organizations without realizing it, and that's that they're not able to demonstrate their strengths. They're not able to play to them. Uh, the organization doesn't allow for them, so they tend to move on because they become disgruntled, don't know why, and it's because they aren't able to put forward um, their strengths and, and indeed aren't able to perceive them. Um, 
you need to buy this book because the assessment instrument actually is hidden in the book. It tells you uh, what the code to use online and then of the 30-odd strengths that they've identified, um, your top five are identified uh, for you and you can determine obviously whether you agree with them or not, um, but they tend to be quite useful in terms of looking at organizations. This was done by Marcus Buckingham who's done quite a bit of work in the area of uh, leadership and management and you may know um, this book which he um, first uh, produced in 1999 and again is still on the bestsellers list uh, today. And what Buckingham found again through his research at the time through the Gallup organization was that we don't tend to focus on strengths um, and what we need to do is define the results that we want and then hold people accountable for them and we should be hiring uh, for talent. And I think that's one of the things that we found in our school uh, where we've tried to uh, not list single content areas that we require faculty in, but rather try to list two or three that we require faculty in and then what strengths we're looking for. We're looking for a research record. We're looking for a commitment to scholarship. We're looking for people who are interested and capable of working in an online environment. And we know that in other areas we can adjust and adapt for that, but as the saying goes, you back the, the jockey, not the horse. And uh, what we've been doing too often, I think, is backing the horse without looking at what are the strengths we need, uh, what are the abilities we need, and if we get somebody who can demonstrate those, then we can really help them to become a high performer um, in our organization. And as a consequence, we also need to make sure that we are developing people who um, will give us return on our time invested. Um, again, studies of managers tend to suggest that we spend our time, if you'll excuse the expression, with the bottom feeders. I mean, we've got, if you take a third, a third, a third, or 20, 60, 20, you've got your top performers, you've got the people who are capable but not performing quite the way you want, and you've got the 20 or 30 or 10 or 5, whatever percent at the bottom. And we put all of our time and energy into people we know fundamentally aren't going to change anyway. And what we should be doing is supporting the top performers and finding ways to develop the people in the middle who have the capability and making sure that we get return on time um, invested as a consequence. So his work has been uh, really, I think, important in how we look at who we hire and how we treat people when we hire them and what we're looking for in our organizations and focus, focusing on talent and strengths and then develop people uh, from those. One of the most important uh, works um, I think for us, and I'll explain uh, why in a minute, is a book called uh, Good to Great. It's pretty well known. Um, and the model that's proposed is that we really need to understand what superior performance is. And of course, this is where libraries typically fail. Uh, we typically do not have key success factors. Uh, we typically don't know and cannot articulate what makes a great library from what makes a mediocre library. We can't agree on that. Some people count the level of financial support they get on a per capita, per student basis as if the input is going to make a difference to the output. Some people count circulation statistics, the number of things that are borrowed, and say this is a really indicator of heavy use. And others people say that's totally irrelevant unless in a community it's making a difference to literacy or in a university it's making a difference to scholarship or student performance or some other measure. And we don't agree on those. So it's very difficult to determine what indeed is great in our field if we can't agree on those things. Um, Collins was the first to identify five levels of leadership. Uh, the first level is those people who are um, 
just capable individuals. They're capable uh, managers. Uh, they know what they're doing. They're um, able in the positions that they hold. Level two leadership are people who are actually um, capable of being exceptional contributors to teams. They know how to work with others. They can get along in the sandbox. They can move the agenda forward. Um, and so on. The third level is the competent manager. You know, somebody who has objectives, knows what they're doing, where they should be going, what they're doing, and so on. The fourth level is the effective leader, and that's the person who does have a vision, um, does have um, objectives, does have standards, does hold people accountable, and can lead an organization forward. And the fifth level of leadership, the truly exceptional people, the ones who can lead organizations to greatness, have really this paradox of both uh, a powerful will as well as some public humility in terms of bringing an organization to move forward. So it's not focused totally on the individual, but it's focused on the unit or the institution so that the progress survives um, the individual. What I think is important here is again looking at first who and then what, in other words hiring for talent and not for a particular um, job slot, and especially in our field when we don't know what the landscape is going to look like in five years. We need people who are capable, adaptable, change agents, flexible, not slotting them in to one position that we want someone to do exceptionally well in 2008 but isn't going to exist in 2010. Um, and so we need to really look for talent and strengths. Now, what he suggests is that from the research that he did on over 4,000 companies is that you define first of all what is it that you're passionate about in terms of your mission what is it that you're passionate about and then where do you get your resources from you know what drives that uh, uh, engine and then what can you be the absolute best at in your field and I think in our school that's one thing that we're looking for is we really as we broaden our horizons we're really narrowing to some extent what we're doing and really focusing on our strengths and making sure that we're playing to them and we become very well uh, known in that area. Um, Collins was the one who um, made the uh, statement that you need to get the right people in the right seats on the right bus heading in the right direction you know if you really want to move forward. I think we all ask ourselves from time to time do we have the right people on the bus? And then secondly, are they really in the right seats in terms of the bus uh, moving forward? Um, he also talks about great organizations having disciplined people you know, who can focus on what's necessary, who can really get rid of all the extraneous things, disciplined thought, and what he suggests is that we really don't want to hear the brutal facts. We really don't want to hear, you know, the emperor just has no clothes here. We don't want to hear those things, and so it's very difficult to have disciplined thought if we don't develop a culture where we hear alternative viewpoints that are reasoned and based on evidence. And then, of course, taking action and recognizing that you don't have the money to be all things to all people, so what is the area that you're going to focus on? The irony, of course, in our field is that it's the larger institutions, the larger research institutions, the larger urban public libraries, that are becoming very good at articulating their mission, their roles, and focusing on being successful and showing impact in those areas. And it's the smaller academic libraries, the smaller public libraries, that seem to feel they need to be all things to all people and therefore don't do anything uh, particularly well. Well, he is um, quite important because he is the first to articulate that in business, money is obviously a serious input but money is also a serious output. I mean, it's the bottom line that counts. Whereas in the not-for-profit sector, money is only an input. It's not an output. 
right? The output has to be somewhat different. And here, um, Collins went on to publish um, Good to Great uh, and the Social Sectors. He published it himself. And he was one of the first to suggest that really we can take what we learn from business and translate it to the not-for-profit sector if we recognize that instead of profit motive, we're looking at the extent to which we accomplish our mission. Okay? So we have a very clearly defined mission. We have a strategic plan and objectives to address that mission. And what we measure then is the extent to which we move forward. And that's where the money should be driving us. And that's what we should be measuring and looking at. So it becomes um, quite cyclical then. First of all, we have key success factors in the not-for-profit sector, or should, uh, that we agree on. Uh, we do track results. Uh, we do provide evidence. And he makes the point that in the for-profit sector, the evidence tends to be quantitative, the statistical data, and we certainly can gather that um, in the not-for-profit sector as well. But in the not-for-profit sector, we also develop qualitative data, where people speak to the quality of their experience. They speak to how their lives are transformed by a particular interaction in their local library, whether it's learning literacy, uh, getting um, evidence that helps them with their market research to establish a new small business, or a student who um, produces a better quality paper as a result of interacting in the library. So the not-for-profit sector, however, more than the for-profit sector, and I think this is really important for us and what we do, suffers from what he labels the culture of niceness. Um, I have always called it um, conflict avoidance. I think this is a better expression, actually. We know that collaboration is important in um, all work environments, and collaboration breeds conflict. So we like collaboration, but we don't like conflict. Well, the issue is, is not whether there's conflict. The issue is whether we have the means to address the conflict. And what he suggests is that the culture of niceness in most not-for-profit organizations means that there is no candor about the brutal facts, and it's very hard then to move the organization forward because we're suffering from delusions, we're suffering from false information, we're suffering from perceptions that may not be valid that we've never tested. And we know from a lot of research that's been done that the evidence is often counterintuitive, um, but we rely on our intuition and think that that's a valid measure of what we should be doing and where we should be going. So the passion for values and mission uh, can inhibit finding uh, effective um, metrics for success and progress because um, often we hide behind, well, we're not a business. So we're in the service area. Well, so is, frankly, Walmart. I mean, Walmart wouldn't be in business if it didn't provide high-quality service or products that people were looking for. So the question is then, what are our metrics? And to stop hiding behind that, let's establish some key success factors. What makes us successful? And then identify those. And of course, in our school, we're starting to do that by looking at a balanced scorecard. What are the metrics that are important to the various communities we serve? How do we gather that data? What does it look like? And then who do we compare ourselves to? And we've got two internal comparators now and two external other universities that we compare ourselves to to see how well we're doing. John Carter uh, looks at a leading change. Um, this is also only on the bestsellers list in the last two years. And it's been out since 1996, and he published some articles uh, before that. But uh, there are a number of models uh, for change. Uh, they have a number of components that are um, 
um, consistent uh, across researchers and titles, but essentially there's got to be some sense of urgency. Um, I mean, what is the urgency for us to change? Why should I change? Uh, what's happening that we should be really looking at this? And that could be a financial urgency, it could be a decrease in customers, it could be um, uh, problems with uh, replacing people, but what is the urgency? And then establishing some kind of guiding coalition that people actually have uh, support groups within the organization who are uh, opinion leaders and putting them together to develop a vision and strategy about how we can address that particular urgency, communicate it, let people go ahead um, and uh, take action, generate some short-term wins that you can actually um, um, celebrate so people can see that we're making progress. Um, that's what really gets people uh, motivated to move forward. And I think uh, more importantly uh, in terms of consolidating the gains is helping to change the culture. And of course there's a lot of research in business that the most important function for a manager or leader is managing the culture. Uh, there's the expression you promote what you permit. Uh, so if you don't deal with issues that are in front of you, you're really saying to people, these are fine, you can go ahead and demonstrate these bad behaviors because I'm unwilling to address them. Uh, so the culture becomes very important. Of course, well, the most productive cultures are ones that are focused on problem solving and uh, continual um, improvement. Now, there's a lot of attention given to teams, of course. Some people hate them because people hide behind the quote team and don't do the work. And, um, you often get a student who will say, well, I did all the work. Nobody else did anything. Well, that's funny. Everybody else in that team said the same thing. Uh, so, I mean, there are different perceptions about what's happening here. But there are some tendencies that tend to corrupt teams. Um, and I gave a colloquium last year where we looked at last year or the year before, where we looked at the research on effective teams and what it means and having some um, ground rules by which we operate and making sure that we have the means for dealing with a conflict and we have some consequences. We determine what our uh, agreed upon level of performance is going to be for students is all we would want to do, we agree, we just want to get through. So we all agree with that at the outset. Or we all agree we're striving for an A here makes a big difference and those things should be discussed before you get right into the whole uh, project and look at standards. And then avoiding accountability and inattention to results. And I think that the question that becomes most difficult for most managers, and if I could use the term instructors here as well, is how do you establish accountability? Um, and how do you build in individual accountability? The focus of teams should be on a group goal but individual accountability. And that's a whole other presentation on how you do that. But um, we uh, are facing a situation in our school right now where we have an instructor who um, is very concerned about the level of performance of a student in uh, demonstrable ways. Uh, I won't go into the details, but we began to wonder with all the evidence that she was giving to us how the student ever got that far. And we went back to see who taught the required core courses and. Uh, uh, being who I am, we tracked down the instructors, said check your register, what were the assignments, what grades did this person get? Well, the information we're getting back is that uh, this was a misuse of teams, uh, that the grades were based on teamwork uh, in many cases, and uh, there was no measure for individual contribution and accountability. So it isn't a question of whether to have teams. Teams are important. The issue is how do you make sure there's individual accountability and you're doing uh, appropriate assessment individually as well as uh, collectively. This uh, just um, came out um, last year, uh, leading a leadership uh, a revolution, and um, 
what it looks at, of course, is trying to develop leaders throughout the organization. One of the um, areas that uh, leaders in our field suggest is a serious problem for them is what they call succession planning. And um, I would suggest that's a misuse of the term, that succession planning really suggests replacement planning. And what we really want to look at is succession management. And succession management in the sense of where do we want to be in five years? What kind of people are we going to have to attract in order to get us uh, where we want to go? And then being active and going after uh, those people. Well, part of succession management as well is having a plan internally in the organization. Succession planning uh, comes up as one of the top three issues for leaders in our field. And it's often the only area where they say they have no plan. They have no idea what they're going to do. Uh, wishes, lies, and dreams, I guess, is what the approach is that's going to be used here. And uh, what uh, really needs to be undertaken is a systematic plan for developing people within the organization. So if they wish, they might put their names forward to move um, up the hierarchy, or they may not. They may demonstrate very important leadership behaviors in their uh, current position, but those opportunities are provided to everyone. Again, from last year, uh, one of the um, bestsellers is on influence and um, making sure that uh, things can change. And of course, here are the things that uh, inhibit influence. And we've all heard these things. It's not my job. Uh, I don't have the ability to do that. Um, they think that if they talk to you long enough that somehow that's influencing when you, they're giving you the same drill they gave you last week. So why would that influence you to change your, your behavior in any particular way? And you know, we've got this problem, so let's fix it and then we can move on to the next problem. Well, if it's a serious problem, it's gonna take a whole lot longer than a few weeks or a few months or even a few years uh, to address it. And then again, um, Focus on the people who really need to be influenced. It's like looking at top performers and mid-performers. You don't spend your time on the people who have no following. If you really want to influence change in some kind of efficient manner, you look at the people who have followers, uh, who are opinion leaders, and start to work with them to bring about the changes you're looking at. Um, I only mentioned the tipping point. It's still on the bestsellers list. It's actually moved over from the business bestsellers list to um, the general uh, uh, public uh, popular bestsellers list. But um, Malcolm Gladwell, I think, is significant in his um, work in the tipping point, a, a, a phrase that's entered the popular lexicon now, um, in identifying really three different types of people who are necessary in order to affect major change and, and indeed advocate effectively. Um, the first is the mavens, the people who have the knowledge, they have the research, they have the evidence, they know um, what the case is to be made. Uh, then there are the connectors, the people who actually can get the doors open, uh, whether it's to a legislator or a president or someone else, and then the people who can make the pitch, the salesperson. Very rarely do you find those three things in the same person, but we tend to think they're in the same person. And just to move a little quickly here, what um, the Heath brothers taught us was um, the curse of knowledge. Um, and if you go back in our field, we tend to be the mavens. We have the knowledge, but we don't necessarily have the connections, and we don't necessarily have the ability to put our case in the language of the decision maker. So we have what um, Chip Heath labels the culture, the curse of knowledge. Um, we tend to tell people what we want them to hear, not what they need to know. And usually what we want them to hear 
is about three times longer and much more jargon-laden than what they really need to know. So the question is, how do we actually make something sustainable? How do we make sure that the idea sticks if we're engaging in advocacy or changing behaviors or promoting uh, services uh, in some way that is uh, useful? And we really need to um, understand what it is we're about, believe in it, care about it, and then make sure that we act. Um, and acting, of course, is a serious uh, a part of the whole thing. And um, this is now one of the top 10 uh, best-selling books of the last two years uh, in business. I think you'll uh, find, um, whether you're in a, um, a library, an information agency, working in a corporation, um, working in one of the high-tech companies, or in a university, these are things that are really important. Uh, we always need to be positioning and repositioning ourselves, making sure that people understand that the world today is different from three years ago. Uh, we need to know what the external changes are on the horizon, what are the things people are talking about, are they going to have implications for us. Um, uh, I think that uh, I won't uh, pass responsibility to anyone else, but people who I speak to regularly in our school, we're always looking at what is the university talking about now, what committee is talking about it, and how could that impact us positively or negatively. And sometimes I think we're not um, appreciated in the uh, neutral sense of that word. We're not appreciated for bringing attention to issues before decisions are made because we're worried about the possible outcome. We've actually had recent examples of, in spite of documentation and minutes and reports, people saying they never even discussed it after we pointed out the implications and they back away. But we need to make sure that somebody is looking at the external environment, someone is planning for it. I find it most amusing that we all sit around and wait for the budget every year. I've only been through this three years, but we all know there's going to be a budget. Uh, we all know that it's going to be about 80% the change, so let's just talk about how we're going to adjust for a little bit more, unlikely, or a little bit less, what we're going to do in that case, rather than waiting till it actually comes down and then we discuss what we're going to do. There should always be you know, the plan A, the plan B, and there's no reason why we can't be transparent about these unless it's going to cause undue concern with people for their um, employment. We know that this is a social system as well, and every organization is a unique social culture. Every organization is unique social culture. And as my father used to say, you know, you play the game with the cards you're dealt, or else you go on to a different game. And so you know what the social culture is, you deal with it as best you can in a way that you try to be effective, but if it's not a culture that you can see changing or not a culture that uh, is um, um, consistent with your values and beliefs and approaches, then you're causing yourself a lot of health issues uh, by staying in that environment. We also know uh, that we need to really start to understand people and making sure that we bring really high-powered people to the table and start to uh, work in, in ways where we're putting our issues on the table in a respectful way and the cliche of being hard on the idea, soft on the person, and understanding that we have differences of opinion. And I can say that I've changed uh, positions um, quite often in my uh, career and 
our school is only the second place I've ever worked, really, where we really are um, very divergent. We express different points of view very strongly around the table. But once the decision is made, everyone's on board, they have their say, and we move on. And uh, we don't have the problem of the real decision taking place in the restrooms or in the parking lot or people bad-mouthing their colleagues or anything like that. And it's very hard to get to that place. Um, but it really is important if you're going to get to uh, good behavior um, that results in good decisions for organizations. And then there is the point about having to be realistic in what you're doing um, and having laser sharp priorities. Um, there is a saying that we make our mistakes too often by not understanding that in any change effort if you want to have really clear priorities you need both pressure and support. Um, support alone, quite frankly, leads to squandered resources because people use it on their priorities, not necessarily yours. Pressure alone leads to alienation because there are no resources to do the job. So it's a question of what is the combination of both pressure and support. And of course, um, in many cases, what an administrator or leader thinks is support is perceived as pressure. Right? Um, we have a very good example, and fortunately the person is in the room, but I'll draw the example. We have a very good example in our school where one of our laser-sharp laser priorities is improving the research productivity of our school. I mean, that's something we've identified. We're very clear about it. So we took money that we were spending on travel and conference attendance and so on, and we put it into a grant writer. Well, as the director, this is enormously supportive to faculty. Well, I'm not so naive as not to think that for faculty, this is enormous pressure. All of a sudden, we have this person who has to be doing something. So what can seem like support from one end can very much be perceived as pressure from the other. And of course, the truth is um, somewhere in the middle uh, between those two. Okay, then. Obviously, healthy behaviors are important, and uh, we've talked uh, about that, the whole issue of infighting, cross-purposes. Um, and we face that in a lot of organizations that aren't very productive, where uh, you know that this too shall pass, uh, that in this particular organization, no one pays any attention to deadlines, so don't bother until they're harassing you for the report. Um, we know that, uh, that uh, a conflicting priority is going to come out from a different office next month, so don't uh, worry about that too much. Uh, well, in those kinds of organizations, you're not going to move forward. It's not a healthy organization, it's not focused, and it's not going to move forward. So the really questions about um, extraordinary executives is, do we have a leadership team, a high-quality leadership team? Are we very clear about what we're doing and where we're going? Are we communicating that to all of our, you know, quote, stakeholders, end quote? And then are we really making sure that the systems um, reward that? And of course, that's where uh, organizations run into difficulty, and we find it in our own organization, where internally in our unit, we have some very clear priorities, we have some very clear um, objectives, but the system as a whole doesn't reward those particular things, so it makes it harder uh, within that smaller unit uh, to move forward. So all the systems need to be um, somewhat aligned as well. Hard to believe this is still on the bestsellers list after almost 20 years. Um, uh, and for whatever reasons, um, uh, some people have real difficulty with this title. We had an instructor use it in a course last year. We got all kinds of complaints. I'm having this particular religion shoved down my throat. 
very strange. I mean, people who don't, can't disagree with ideas seem to find other labels to try and um, obscure the message. But in this particular case, the message is pretty clear. And if you're objective about it and you want to be successful, it's uh, pretty commonsensical as well. And that's that you really start by understanding deeply uh, what you want to happen. You take some initiative. You really try to organize around priorities. You don't uh, uh, put up a, a win-lose proposition, but try to make sure that everybody walks away feeling that they won. And then you make sure that you recognize that you're a pretty important player in this. and You've got to re-energize yourself and make sure you've got a source of ideas as well. I don't think there's anyone who hasn't heard about uh, uh, Peter Drucker. Um, he's uh, revered. Uh, unfortunately, his ideas aren't quite as revered in practice as he is uh, in theory. And it's very interesting that uh, um, what everybody knows is frequently wrong. Um, let me give you an example of that in our field. We have a couple of studies now in the last two years that tell us the strongest supporters of libraries the strongest supporters of libraries are people who never use them. Talk about counterintuitive. Uh, librarians just cannot accept this. The biggest funders of libraries in this country are people who never use them. Well, we always assume that as long as we can get them to use us, they'll want to give us money. Well, no, actually, it's better if you don't let them in the door. They're, <laughs> they're more likely to give you money. Counterintuitive, right? Um, we know that libraries that present themselves as information services aren't nearly as well supported as libraries that present themselves as transformational organizations. So in other words, we're not providing information to help you do your assignment. What we're doing is providing an experience here that will turn you into a better researcher and a better scholar. Okay? Uh, we also know that uh, from Drucker's studies that people shouldn't stay longer than six years in a job their ability starts to decline. Uh, their freshness starts to decline. Uh, they start to assume that they know what the answer is without uh, investigating as much as they do during the uh, first year. We also know uh, that uh, nobody likes to do menial tasks, but some things can only be done by the person who's in charge, and so they need to do those. I think what we forget, however, too often as managers and leaders, and we see it um, quite close by, is that we need to recognize that in some positions, only the person who holds that position can do some unique things. So they shouldn't be spending their time doing what other people can do because those other people don't have their mandate in their portfolio to actually spend some time um, looking at uh, where we should be going and how we're going to get there and how we're going to improve uh, systems. And self-confidence is pretty important because anyone in a senior position is going to be knocked back uh, quite often. Well, you no doubt have heard about uh, emotional um, intelligence. Um, the ability to really recognize what kind of uh, awareness and emotions are necessary in a situation. Um, these uh, researchers have actually moved on now to something called social intelligence, um, how to behave appropriately emotionally in social situations. Let me give you a quick um, example. Um, and these are uh, examples done, taken from um, a school that uh, invested in uh, a curriculum for emotional intelligence and taught to classes to kids in a middle school. Um, 
a, a young a kid uh, in sixth grade was walking down the hall and he was going off to, um, a prac to a soccer practice and try out for a soccer team. And three big guys uh, were walking um, behind uh, him down the hall. And one of the, uh, again, I guess they were in the eighth grade, he was in the sixth grade. One of the kids walking behind said, look at the runt up in front. Thinks he's going to get on the team, there's no way. So they started to kid around and say, yeah, what is he even wasting our time for? Let's just shove him aside and uh, get on with it. We're going to make the team. He's never going to make it. And the kid in front, who had been through these emotional intelligence programs, turned around and said, I know I'm not going to make it. Um, you guys will make it. There's no question about that. I mean, look at you. I've seen you play. But I know that by going out, I'm going to pick up some good tips. I really like playing soccer. I like watching it. I'll meet some interesting people. So that's why I'm going to try out, and I hope that you'll help me learn a few things. And they kind of stopped and looked at him and said, well, sure, come along with us and we'll show you a few things. Well, that's very different from what could easily have been a confrontational situation and diffusing the situation. And we all need those kinds of skills as well. Uh, this is a um, top-selling um, book. Um, it's on uh, The Economist, actually, top 10 books uh, in business for 2007. And what really makes for high-impact not-for-profit organizations and what doesn't? And, um, Really, in our field, I'd say the lesson that we can uh, learn from this is, first of all, um, the importance of partnerships and creating partnerships with other organizations and treating advocacy seriously. Successful not-for-profit organizations actually put money into advocacy. They train people in advocacy. They make sure that everyone in their organization is an effective advocate and knows what's necessary in order to advance um, the organization. And they also make sure that uh, they're leveraging the power and resources of business by creating partnerships for funding and so on. You know, there are examples of um, public libraries that have major banks funding their entire summer reading program. There are examples of, uh, of university libraries that have found business partners who fund new labs, those kinds of things. So making sure that business understands the contribution that we make to their well-being as well. The old management model, efficiency and control, just doesn't work anymore. It doesn't. Because people do want to be adaptable and they do want to be creative. And what happens is when you work in an organization that's based on control, you just find creative ways to get around it. And you think, well, you know, let them suffer from the delusion that they're controlling us when really we're doing what we wanted to do and we'd rather be upfront and open about the whole thing and honest and work together. But if that's not the way we're going to operate, then we'll just find ways of getting around the system. And frankly, it's the part of my job that I just love. I mean, it's the most <laughs> exciting part is figuring out how can we beat the system? This makes no sense whatsoever. We've talked to them directly. They don't agree with us. So it becomes a bit of a game. And you need to make sure that you're doing things honestly, ethically, transparently. There's no question about those three things. But you also need to recognize that creativity and adaptability are what are going to allow units to be successful, and allow organizations to be successful. And so that community of purpose, really understanding the importance of community, understanding the importance of innovation, and making sure that people have their voice and that you're taking advantage of those become uh, pretty significant as well. I think that um, for us uh, in our field, one of the great challenges we have is the whole business of synthesizing information. Typically, uh, when somebody's made an information request, our role has been to find the 29 best sources and give them all to someone. Well, 
people who work in corporations as information specialists and librarians uh, haven't operated that way for some time. They know that what somebody wants is a four-page synthesis of the very best research and evidence so I can make decisions based on it. That's what I'm paying before. You read the 29 studies, synthesize it and give it to me and let me move forward. And that's what's being asked for a lot more um, by um, librarians and other information specialists. Um, it's not the old hunt it down uh, and work at it, but really I'll read it, I'll synthesize it and provide you with some um, uh, information that will be useful and save your time. We had an interesting experience in our school. We um, had a position called a research librarian and um, we thought it would be very useful for our school. We'd actually um, make decisions based on evidence. <laughs> We'd actually have somebody who'd have the time to find the evidence. So a great idea popped into a faculty member's mind. Rather than just debating it and sharing ignorance, we would actually send somebody off to research it and tell us what happened elsewhere, what best practices were, and how we might move forward. We thought we would be inundated with applications. It was very hard to find someone uh, who understood what a research librarian could be and would be in our case, and wasn't just going to provide us with things to read and uh, really take a lot more time than would have been the case without that particular position. And I think that synthesizing is an area and a skill uh, that's becoming increasingly important. Actually, in information literacy, the people, the ability of individuals to recognize a need for information, to locate it, derive meaning from it, and share it with others, um, we know that of the six major components of that, the one that is most critical and the one that's not given any attention to in instructional programs is the ability to synthesize. We make assumptions that people can do that, and they can't, and we certainly see it in graduate education as well. Trust is obviously um, very important, and these are the behaviors of trust-inspiring leaders, that there really is um, some focus on results, there's some accountability, uh, there is some transparency, and there's also um, commitments that are made and commitments that are kept. Mark Penn has kind of fallen onto tough times. You may know that he was uh, one of the chief campaign strategists for one of the people in the primary who uh, didn't uh, quite uh, make it. But I think it's useful because he uh, really introduces the notion that we have a fragmented market now. There's no market for uh, library users. There are several markets. I mean, a senior citizen who wants a good book to read has very different needs from a hormonally imbalanced 14-year-old who wants a good book to read. You know, they just aren't the same market. And what he's identified are a number of niche markets, and I think that some of them are pretty um, significant uh, for us. We've all heard in the last couple of elections about the soccer moms. Now we're hearing about hockey moms. Um, but. Uh, another story. Anyway, um, we um, know that there are actually um, niches that I think we would be foolish to ignore. He identifies one group called the high school moguls. Um, and I think we could talk about undergraduate moguls. People who have high ability in technology, high entrepreneurial spirit, spirit interested in starting new companies and we're not taking advantage of having those people work for us on projects and putting us in touch with them and so on. At the other end of the extreme, uh, he's he uh, identifies people who are uh, no interest in technology whatsoever. They don't have email, they don't know how to surf the web, um, and they're in uh, apparently growing numbers. One of them I believe is actually 
running for office right now. I mean, there are a lot of these people who um, are in these niches, and I think we would ignore them um, at our peril. Just to um, wind up then, um, obviously, somebody needs time to do these things, and there are all kinds of books written on time management. Um, this one by David Allen seems to have the ability to stay on the bestsellers list. It's been on the bestsellers list for at least the last three years. Um, and the importance of uh, clearing out the clutter mentally as well as physically, uh, focusing really on the priorities, and then making sure that um, you have some system. I don't think this one uh, is any better than others. The point is to have a system and to make sure that it uh, works. There is the old rule, have only one piece of paper on your desk at a time if you really want to be successful. I do not demonstrate that, I must confess, but uh, I know that it is a useful uh, rule to have in place. I find this book um, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I find it quite annoying, actually, because it's written by a 30-year-old who's made millions of dollars uh, from uh, his uh, um, plan. But what he's done, uh, very interestingly, uh, Tim Ferriss, is, he lives in the Bay Area, he talks about having lunch at Santana Row and so on and so forth. But, um, he uh, developed the acronym DEAL. And DEAL stands for, and I'll just comment briefly on it, define exactly what you want to do. Define what the outcomes are that you're looking at. Then eliminate everything else and focus on what's important to you. Then automate the process, which I'll comment on in a minute, and then liberate yourself to spend time doing the things you want to do. Okay? Um, really, the world of work, things are really only work if A, you have to do it because you need the money, and B, you'd rather be doing something else. If those two things are in place, then it's work. Otherwise, it's uh, not really work. Well, the idea of automating, he really introduced to the business world the whole notion of outsourcing uh, tasks, uh, particularly to Indian developing countries, um, where you can hire an MBA for $8 an hour, uh, who will do your research for you, who do your PowerPoint presentations, who will do your market research. And his point is, no matter where you are in the organization, he starts with uh, his activities as a 20-something, you convince your boss to let you work at home one day a week. You're always reluctant to do that, but you say you think you can be more productive, so you do it. Of course, you outsource your work to a team of people in India, and you come in the next day with all these things accomplished, so when you ask a month later for two days at home, terrific. So then it goes on to tell you how you're finally telecommuting, really, um, it doesn't, uh, he outlines all the services, telephone services, email services, and so on, so that when people want to get in touch with you, they really don't know whether you're in um, Cupertino or Buenos Aires. You know, that uh, when the phone rings, it can be the same telephone number you have either place, and uh, uh, it can be done very inexpensively. And what he introduces is a large number of firms that are actually providing services uh, in North America. And uh, they aren't just in India, actually. There are now a number of services where you can post that you'd like a ghostwriter for a book. You're willing to spend up to $1,000, and people bid on the contract. If you haven't seen, it's called Elance. Uh, and there are all kinds of services like that. Guru.com is another, um, where you can uh, really outsource source personnel services, financial services, research, writing, you name it. Um, some of these specialize in only personal services, um, calling to have flowers delivered to uh, uh, someone, getting tickets. And you think about it, you think, how could somebody in India do this? Well, you do it electronically, or you could, or you pick up the phone, they can do it just as easily. Um, he uses his service, uh, I think it's, he says it's $25 um, a month for five hours which is clocked by the minute, he uses it when you know, the plumber doesn't show up. 
And he tells his uh, personal assistant, Nindy, to get on the phone and harass them until they get here. So they call every half hour, say, where are you? I'm waiting for you, I'm waiting for you. So, you know, there are personal assistants and there are um, professional business assistants, but it does mean that we can all be much more productive. Somehow I don't think my organization would go for that, personally, but I think that some of the consulting work I do, um, I've used some of those services and they've worked very well. In conclusion, then, what are some of the key things that uh, come out here? Well, there are some business principles from successful organizations that do make a difference. Um, we know that in the not-for-profit sector, our mission uh, should trump profit. That essentially what is our profit, the extent to which we address our mission, which is what people are investing in. So we need ways to measure that to demonstrate that we're moving our mission forward. And then what actually constitutes success in our work? How do we articulate that? And then how do we measure and report it in ways that have meaning for the people who are funding us? And of course, knowing yourself is the place to start. Uh, making sure that you have people around you who are productive, uh, who believe that um, others in the organization should be uh, developed as well. Uh, making sure that you are influencing the kinds of changes that are necessary for you and your unit to be uh, successful. And then, of course, uh, being accountable as well. And accountability, I think, is what we're all looking for, not only from ourselves, but from the uh, people around us as well. So in my view, uh, the leadership books from 2007 and 2008 do have some things to teach us and at least some things to think about if we want to become very clear about where we're going and how to be more successful in getting there. Thanks very much. <laughs>